Thank you, guys. Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, Evan read the entirety of our passage this morning, but I'm just going to read verses 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would your kingdom come, and would your will be done here on earth and in this city and in this church as it is being done perfectly, gloriously, beautifully in heaven. Do that in our body, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's something utterly compelling about the early church in the book of Acts, right? Those first few times you read the book of Acts and you see, especially in chapters two and four, how this new church was acting with each other and with the community around them. You've got all these baby Christians who are bending over their Bibles, they're bowing in prayer, they're teaching the word, they're opening their homes in table fellowship with each other, they're worshiping the Lord together. And what's even more compelling, they're putting their money where their mouth is and they are selling possessions to give to the poor so that there aren't needy people among them. Now, I love when I'm on Facebook and kind of scrolling through my feed and I see causes that come up on Facebook. You know, that's kind of the end thing to do is put your cause up there and, and, and you'll see 10,000 people liked relief for refugees. And it's like, wow, awesome. Dot, 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 $16 given. And it's like, okay, I learned everything I need to know about those 10,000 people. I mean, I, I get Anybody can click a like button, but you take out your wallet, which Jesus says is tied to your heart, and you give sacrificially to something, and then you've got my attention about the cause that you say you're behind. But here you've got this baby church, and yes, it is full of sinners, like we are full of sinners, but God is doing something miraculous in their midst because they start selling possessions They sell land, they sell houses, they choose to drive an older model car, they rearrange their vacation plans, not so that they could collect money to build a bigger and better church building, but so that they could give it away to the poor. By Acts chapter 6, there is a daily distribution of food to those who need it most. That's incredible. That's happening in the first pages of the church. The whole thing feels like heaven on earth, like God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the point, that the church is made, designed to show forth God and his kingdom. That idea doesn't start with the church. 
It doesn't even start in the Gospels. It starts way back here in the book of Exodus when he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham, and you're going to show forth my glory. You're going to fulfill my glory through you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it's not like when this nation is being designed and the Constitution is drawn up with its laws that Israel is going to look like every other nation. It just so happens that she worships Yahweh instead of Baal or Molech. No, that's not the point at all. Her civil, ceremonial, economic life is meant to show forth God to a watching world. If a Canaanite came to Israel and saw the way that this nation treated the poor, that person would walk away and say, wow, there is something different about Israel's God than my God. And today, if an unbeliever came and saw the way the church treats the poor, he or she should walk away and say, well, dang. I mean, I'm active on Facebook for mercy and justice, but this group of people, they roll up their sleeves, they open their front doors, and they get after it when it comes to mercy and justice in our city. What am I missing in my life? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good deeds and glorify their father who is in heaven. I see the church and I learn something about God who is in heaven and what he is like. The Old Testament, it says a ton about the poor. It's everywhere. It's in the law. It's in the history, Psalms, Proverbs, prophets. You can't do a survey of the Old Testament and not mention this reoccurring theme of mercy and justice for the poor. But it should tell us something that it happens right away in our survey. Like no sooner has Israel left the land of Egypt. They're just at Mount Sinai. They haven't even gone to the promised land. They don't have a king yet. They don't have a system set up. They're not paying taxes yet. They haven't even got there. And while they're at Sinai, God says, first things first, this is how you will treat the poor. When you yourselves are no longer poor, when you have established yourself in the new land, this is how you treat the poor. So I just want to ask a few questions of this passage and and hear the passage answer these questions for us. Number one, who are the poor? Keep using that word, but who do we mean when we say the poor? Our verses mention the sojourner, which is like an immigrant or an alien, the widow, the orphan, and then it also uses that phrase, the poor. So poverty is not just an issue about money, like how much money a person does or doesn't have. According to the Bible, poverty is an issue of vulnerability. Like, does this person have access to rights and to justice and to resources and to opportunities, networks, necessities? Can can they get access to those things? And if not, they are poor. Poverty, then, is a multi-dimensional thing that we're talking about. And Exodus right now is saying that things like race and nationality might make somebody vulnerable. Or a broken family might make someone vulnerable. Or being in debt, or being outside of the centers of power, or not having access to justice, those make a person vulnerable. There's an excellent book on the subject, Ruby Payne's A Framework for Understanding Poverty. 
That used to be a uh, required reading for our deacons. That would be a wonderful place to look. I think Ezekiel Ministries makes that required reading, but a wonderful place to help us understand and get outside of this narrow idea of the poor being associated to money and start understanding it as access to resources and vulnerability. So that's who are the poor. Number two, how did they become poor? Is that not the great American capitalist question? How did they become poor? In other words, I want to know whose fault is it? Because if it's their fault, if it's somebody's fault for why they're poor, then all bets are off. I'm stepping away from the book of Exodus and none of this applies to me. That sounds like those very dark moments when a black man is killed by police and someone ventures to ask, well, is that man a criminal? How dark, how far we have fallen from our humanity. What are we even talking about in those moments? The question's not, is this person a criminal? Does this person deserve to be here? Who deserves what according to our mindset and our estimation? The question is, is this person a human being? And if so, by God's gracious design, this person is afforded the justice and mercy that is the inalienable right of every human being who is made in the image of God. That's why there's no qualification here in verse 25. God says, if you lend money to any of my people who is poor, not, as we like to say, any of my deserving people who are poor. Now, there's a ton of wisdom in discerning how to help the poor, but there's just not a lot of latitude in the Bible on if we help the poor. So I may never give money to panhandlers. I don't give cash on the street and I won't do that. But woe to me if I don't find ways through this church body and through ministries in this city that give real and lasting help. Question number three, the most important question. How does God view the poor? That's what I want to know. That's who the poor is. But how does God view the poor. There are two scenes in our passage between God and the poor. One of them is is touching and one of them is absolutely terrifying. And I want to see both of those images. Here's the touching one. In verses 25 to 27, it talks about loaning money to the poor. So you get the scene, right? You've got money, you're going to loan it to a poor person. You give them the loan and according to that loan, they need to give you their cloak, their coat as a pledge so that you'll hold on to that until you get your money back, and then you can give them back their cloak as the pledge. But verse 26 steps in and says, give that cloak back at night, quote, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. All of a sudden in those verses, you realize that God's law that's written here and that's written throughout scripture, 
is not him arbitrarily picking commands out of thin air and placing them in our lives to make them more difficult. Everything that's in God's law actually displays and mirrors what God is like and what he cares about. He's writing laws about the poor because he cares about the poor. Listen to what this God is like. We worship a God who holds sway over galaxies and solar systems and planets and nations and kings and presidents. He's a God who is described as high and lifted up and the train of his robe, it fills the temple in all glory. He's a God who even right now, angels and creatures and saints are bowing down before him in worship. He is an awesome and a mighty God and he is the same God who says, when a poor person goes to sleep at night and is cold, I see that person and I have compassion on them. That's what God is like. We might not see that person. We might overlook that every day. We might have really important things that we're about, but God sees, God hears, God cares, God has compassion. I'm willing to bet, I mean, based on Exodus alone, I am willing to bet that if you took this same God of Exodus and, and you like introduced him to us. Like he came to earth as a man and he was hanging out with us and he was walking down the street and you had a blind man who was destitute who began calling out to him, have mercy on me. And everybody around that blind man was like, look man, keep it down. This is God. He's got really important things to do. He can't stop for you. I bet according to Exodus 22 that that same God would stop He would see, he would have compassion, and he would heal that man. I win the bet because he literally did that in Luke chapter 18. I mean, think about God's story being incarnate as Jesus. God was born poor in Bethlehem. He fled to Egypt as a refugee. He grew up in a single family home in Nazareth. And when he died in Jerusalem, he had nothing but the shirt on his back. And Jesus had such a vibrant ministry among the poor. Get this. This is, this is weird, but this is one of my favorite scenes about Jesus. He's at the Last Supper. He's about to be betrayed. Judas is going to do it. He turns to Judas and says, what you're about to do, go and do quickly. And the disciples totally miss what's happening. They know Judas holds the money and they actually think that Jesus is telling Judas to go give a gift to the poor. Why do they think that? Because Jesus was always doing something like that and they just assumed that he interrupted Judas's dinner to tell him to give a gift because that's the kind of person that Jesus is. I love that. This God of the New Testament in the incarnate person of Jesus sure sounds a lot like the God of the Old Testament law in Exodus. There's going to be no bait and switch between Old Testament and New Testament. He is a God who is compassionate for the poor. That's the touching scene between God and the poor, but there's a terrifying scene that I would be remiss if I didn't reread from verses 23 and 24. God says this, if you do mistreat them 
And they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. I don't really have a comment here. I just wanted you to be aware of that. Just let that sink in, that God watches out for and defends the poor where nobody else will, sometimes violently. And he will bring his justice on their behalf. Well, if that's how God views the poor, then we immediately ask, how then ought we view the poor? That's our last question. How how do we treat the poor if this is how God views the poor? What's so difficult about application here is, of course, we live in a very complex world that is very impersonal between the rich and the poor. We, we have these gaps and barriers. It's not like Israel in Moses' day. We're not going to walk out of here and make an actual loan to a poor person and take anything as collateral. Our injustice is so much more impersonal than that. It's also difficult because we live in such a highly charged political climate with these binary talking points that don't even make sense. Immigration or no immigration. A wall or no wall. Is it a welfare state or a welfare queen? There's no middle ground. It's impossible to have a wise, nuanced, biblically informed conversation about real ministry among the poor on social media. It just can't be done. But here's the good news. God doesn't care. He doesn't give a rip about a a substantial social media presence for the poor. He's telling us to get out of our online world and into this world and roll up our sleeves and actually do something about what God cares about. So with that in mind, let me just pull one principle that comes up in our passage, and it actually comes up again and again, and it is utterly foreign to American ears. You're going to hear this principle, and you're going to think we're talking about communism. This is just like not comfortable for an American to hear. And the principle is this. People are more precious than personal property. Can you imagine that? People, like human beings, are more precious than our personal property. I see that principle in the money lending scenario in that verses 25 to 27 that we talked about. This is a a legal loan that's being made. I have money that I have earned. It is my money and a poor person needs this money to borrow it. So I lend it to them and I take the cloak as a pledge and legally that's my cloak. Until this person pays their money back, I would be remiss if I gave up that cloak because I will never see my hard-earned money again. The cloak is mine until I see that money again. That actually reminds me a little bit of the laws that come up in Leviticus 19 and 23, which says when you plant a field and you go to harvest it, leave the corners of the field for the poor. Just harvest everything else and leave them so that the poor will have something to eat. And that would bring up the same issue of a person saying, wait a minute, that's my field. I mean, I plowed the whole thing. I planted the whole thing. I fertilized it. I watched over it. The entire field is mine, even the corners. What are we, socialists now? I mean, this is my field, and I have every right to it. Friend, we're talking like an American. One of the first 
English words we learned was mine. This is mine. I learned mama, and then I learned no, and then I learned mine. And some of my sentences, they just don't get much beyond that, right? Those are, those are the key words for us to know, and we're talking like an American. But I tell you, this is not our kingdom. This ain't it. What you've been discipled into is not your home. We have a kingdom that gets rearranged around God and everything changes in this kingdom, including my rights and my personal property. People in God's kingdom are more precious than my property. There's something more important here in this kingdom than what I've earned, what I've collected, what I've defended, and that is mercy and justice for the vulnerable. If we're going to do that in this space, if we're going to do that in this church, we've got to learn an entirely new language. We've been discipled in American language, and we can say, mama, no, mine, but now we're learning an entirely new language in the kingdom, which says, father, yes, yours. This is yours. All of it is yours. I'm yours. I've been bought with a price. Everything I have is yours. Now tell me what to do and how to live. You know, while I was preparing for the sermon this week, um, there was a very sweet banquet that was put on by two women on our church, um, Capernaum and Young Lives. And those are two ministries. One is for um, teens with special needs. One is for pregnant teens and just beautiful ministries that are happening in our city by Cola Prez women. And it felt like half the people there were from Columbia Presbyterian Church. I mean, it was just beautiful to see you there. And I don't say that to boast. I mean, I say it a little bit to boast. I was really proud of y'all for being there and supporting that. But I say that because the last thing we studied before we got to this Old Testament survey was the book of Ephesians. And in that book, God made us a promise. He said, I'm building local church bodies. And Ephesians chapter four, he said, I am going to put people in your body right in front of you with the spiritual gifts that the body needs to grow up together to become like Jesus. And when I was there that week, last week, I said, this is really happening. God is true to his word. There are people in our body who can lead us in these very things. Which means if you are eager to get involved with the poor, there are two things you can begin today. Number one is to give generously to this church because we will turn around and give generously to ministries that meet the needs of the poor and the vulnerable in our city and beyond. And the second thing you can do is if you don't have an outreach ministry right now, you don't know how you're connecting with unbelieving neighbors, join us in one of these outreach ministries, whether it's Capernaum or Young Lives or something that our deacons are doing. These are ways to immediately get involved as a church body together in this kind of ministry. And may God make us a shining light of mercy in our city so that our neighbors will look and they'll see these God-inspired, God-empowered good deeds done in the body and they will turn and glorify their Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. 
Jesus, we need you. We need you. We have been discipled in another kingdom. We've been discipled according to different rules. We have been so well discipled in American culture. Will you show us that this world is not our own? Will you show us that our kingdom is not here, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a savior from there? Change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.